Well, one of the most important gifts that we have on earth is really our Christian testimony. It is our witness to the grace of God in Christ Jesus to us and in us and through us to others. It's God's transforming grace in the life of a sinner that is a powerful witness to the truth of Jesus' identity, that He is Savior, King, that He is God, Emmanuel, God with us. And also to the truth of the gospel, that the good news of Jesus, His salvation, His kingdom. And therefore our testimony uh, to His grace in our lives is a prime target uh, for the spiritual forces of darkness. Uh, When our testimony can be destroyed, our usefulness uh, for Christ or usefulness to Christ in the advancement of His kingdom is greatly diminished. Um, And so we have to contend with the accuser of the brethren, the old serpent of old who always accuses uh, us day and night before uh, our God, as Revelation 12.10 reminds us. We also have to contend with malicious gossips, destructive slander, false accusations, sinister innuendos, deliberate undermining... um, These things are really the tools of the trade uh, in character assassination. They are the tools of the trade of witness tampering. That is, of course, the witness of the believer tampering with, with their witness to the grace of God and the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ in their life, all aimed at destroying one's credibility as a witness of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus, really as a, as a minister of the gospel. And we also have to contend with our own sinful flesh, which aims to destroy our own witness, our sinful hypocrisy. Uh, through which we blaspheme God, Romans reminds us, claiming to be a corrector of the faith, or, or the foolish rather, a teacher to the immature, having the knowledge of God's law and yet breaking it, doing exactly what we denounce in others. But praise be to God <clears throat> that we have an advocate, that Jesus... <clears throat> Pardon me, is our advocate, as we read in 1 John 2. Jesus is our high priest who intercedes for us. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in, uh, to help in time of need. And of course, Jesus, so Jesus is our advocate, He's our high priest, and He is our friend. Uh, he's a friend who loves at all time, a brother born for adversity. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, as Romans, uh, sorry, Proverbs 19, 24 
reminds us. And so we can, we can exclaim with the psalmist, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Now, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and last week in our study, we looked at the prophet's doubt. The prophet, of course, referring to John the Baptist, that he suffered a momentary lapse uh, into uncertainty uh, about the identity of Christ. Uh, Are you the expected one was his question. And we saw that faith really was a settled disposition, having assurance and conviction of something, uh, to the truth of something, uh, to the extent that we are willing to trust it, that we are willing to live according to it. Doubt, we saw, was a temporary uh, position. It's not a settled position. It is basically having uncertainty or being unconvinced about truth. And so it's not that you dismiss that truth. It's just that you're not sure at that moment. Unbelief, we saw, is a settled position again uh, in opposition to a claim of truth. So really, in that sense, it is faith believing that something is not true. We also saw that there were some contributing factors to John's doubt. We saw that he was excluded, that he was isolated, that he was separated uh, from the ministry of Jesus and what was going on. We looked at and said that he was possibly exhausted from such a confronting ministry that he had. both physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion opens one up to, to doubts. And we also saw that he had unfulfilled expectations, that he pronounced Jesus to be the Christ, the coming king who will come and judge the world and establish his righteous rule. And yet here he is in prison. Herod is still the ruler. The Romans are still occupying Israel and the corrupt leaders are still in place. And so even a great man like John the Baptist was not immune to doubt. And given the right circumstances and conditions, we are all open to sometimes doubt. When we exclude ourselves from the fellowship of others, when, when we exclude ourselves uh, from the church, from the, the meeting together of, of believers, uh, when we are exhausted uh, both physically and emotional, or when we have unexpected uh, or unfulfilled, rather, expectations. When life is not going as planned, when God's plan seems to divert from our plans, and when, when His ways are different to our ways, then we are tempted to doubt. But Jesus corrected John's expectations. He allayed his doubt by informing him of the scriptures. He, he pointed to the, him to the word of God and the portions of prophecies that was being fulfilled in his life. That the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised to life, and the gospel was preached to the poor. Now today, we are moving into our next section in, in Matthew 11. And Matthew 11, as I said last week as well, is a pivotal chapter in Matthew. In the first 10 chapters, Matthew provided ample proof of Jesus' identity, that He is the Christ, that He is the King, that He is the expected one, uh, and that those who 
were following his ministry, those who were hearing his preaching, those who were benefiting from his healings and, and his miracles, that they should indeed repent and believe. But in chapter 11, we see that instead of repenting and believing, people started doubting. And of course, John was an example or a representation of, of those who, who still doubted. And then also, we saw how that doubt uh, in people... Uh, lead ultimately to disobedience because they failed to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, transitioning over to a full-blown opposition, an outright opposition to Jesus as the King, Jesus as the Christ, uh, as the ministry leaders turned against Jesus and His ministry, seeking to destroy Him, as we will see later in chapter 12. But John's integrity, John's Witness his testimony, his ministry of repentance was critical to Jesus' own mission. It was critical to the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king, that he is the expected one. And so Jesus could not leave any doubt in the minds of the crowds as to the truthfulness and the faithfulness and the accuracy of John's identity as a prophet, as the prophet really, and also a, a forerunner of the Messiah and his testimony that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus had to come to his aid. Jesus had to defend him. Jesus had to intercede for him. Jesus had praised him. And so this morning, this is what we'll find in our text, that the, this is really the, the prophet's praise by Jesus. And so turn to Matthew 11, if you have not yet, and we'll be reading from verse 7 all the way through to verse 15. Matthew 11, verse 7 reads, as these men were going away, Jesus began to uh, speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet one, of, one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. But if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me pray for us. Um, gracious Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for this portion of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for all Scripture. Lord, uh, all the Word of God is inspired God breathed, Lord, and profitable for teaching and for rebuke and correcting, correction and training in righteousness. And Lord, we thank you that your word is life-giving. We thank you, Lord, that, that you speak to us through your word. You remind us, Lord, and teach us about yourself. 
uh, and your ministry to us, Lord. Um, you lead us into close fellowship with you, Lord, through your word. And, and for that, we thank you and pray this morning as we hear your word, Lord, that, that you would apply it, Lord, by your spirit to each one at their point of need, at their point of conviction, at their point of doubt, Lord, uh, at their point of error, Father, that you would bring it into conformity and into line with your word and the truthfulness and the faithfulness of your character. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we'll see from this passage, really, uh, Jesus defending or praising John. And first of all, he vindicates him. And then secondly, he validates them as, as a prophet. And so verse 7, we read that the men who were going away, these are, of course, the disciples of John who, who, who came and present John's question to Jesus. And immediately as they left, Jesus turned and, and sought to make sure that there would be no doubt in the mind of the crowd as to who John the Baptist was. John and his ministry, as I said, played a prominent part in the plans and purposes of God, and he was critical to the mission of Christ. John's integrity, his testimony, his witness, his ministry cannot be allowed to be tainted, to be destroyed by the careless gossip and slander of others. Those who overheard the, the doubt John had in the question that he asked, are you the expected one? You see, for John was the forerunner of the Messiah. And though he may have experienced a, 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 a moment of doubt, that was not characteristic of John. John was a, a great man. John was a, a, a prominent prophet. Highly esteemed by Jesus. And so Jesus defended John, his person, his testimony, and his ministry. And in, and in so doing, uh, really, Jesus shows us that it is wrong for us to condemn a person for a one moment of doubt, for for sort of a, a, a one deviation from an otherwise true and steadfast life, an honorable life, a holy life. Jesus teaches us here that uh, to form an accurate opinion about a person, their whole life needs to be taken into account, needs to be considered, their past and, and their present. And John's past life and ministry had been exemplary. And furthermore, Jesus, this should remind us of the words of Jesus earlier in Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 when he says that we should be careful how we judge, how we condemn others. Uh, because with the standard of measure that we use, it will be measured against us. And so Jesus came to the defense of John before the crowds dismissed John and slander his testimony about who Jesus is. John confessed Jesus to be the Christ before men, and now Jesus confesses John before the crowds. Jesus vindicated John's witness, his ministry, saying really two things. John is not fickle, and John is not false. 
What a friend we have in Jesus. What an advocate, what a, what a high priest. And so he, he, he guides their opinion of John by asking them a few questions. And the first one is, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? He's asking them, why did you travel all the way from Galilee down to the Judean desert? Was it to see and hear a man who resembled a reed swaying in the wind on the banks of the Jordan River? And the implied answer would be, surely not. For no one would travel to listen to someone who is fickle, who is unstable, who is vacillating. Well, certainly not in those days, maybe, maybe today. But John was not like a reed, swayed by the status of his audience, swayed by the fickleness of the crowd. John was not into tickling ears. He did not trim the sails of his preaching to the winds of cultural acceptance, political correctness, and insatiable wokeness. He had one message, and it was solid. It was certain. It was convicting. It was, he was convinced. He was more like a sturdy oak of righteousness, strong, unflappable, immovable, preaching repentance of sin and bearing the fruit of righteousness in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Matthew 3, 7, we read uh, how he addressed the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called them out, you brood of vipers who wanted, who warned you sorry, to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in repentance, in keeping with repentance. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so see, John had one message, repent, the king is coming. Repent, the king is near. Repent, the king is here. And John's life backed up his preaching. His life was a steadfast life. A one bearing the fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's what Jesus pointed out next. He says, John is not fickle and John is not false. Verse 8 says, What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. And some translations say fancy clothes or fine clothes or dressed in silks and satins. Uh, really, but, the, but the word is mean soft. Uh, soft clothing does not really come to mind when we think of John who was, who was going around in a cloak made of camel's hair and a, and a, and a leather belt. I mean, it's about as soft as a panscour. Uh, he lived in the desert in, and not in king's houses. He ate locusts and honey and not the king's luxury fare. Jesus pointed out that they did not go into the wilderness to see someone given to personal comfort and ease. John was not a pampered prince. He was not a man given to luxury. To the refinements that you find in king's palaces. Those who like soft clothing are those who parade themselves in palaces. Who have an affinity for the finer things in life. 
And they are often sycophants. They are often flatterers. Those who suck up to others. Those who bootlick. Those who carry favor with those in power and authority. So that they will reward them with gifts and positions to feather their own nest. Not, not John. He was, from a young age, he lived in the desert. Renouncing all the allurements of power and, and prestige and pleasure. So that he could live a life of intimate devotion to God. Personal denial and wholehearted dedication. He did not pamper to the whims of those in authority. And therefore he was not welcome in the halls of religious power. You may remember that the Pharisees turned against John. Uh, We'll see in our next few verses that they suggest that he had a demon. So John stood aside from that. He stood outside of that. He was speaking as a man of God, not as a for the king, not for pope or bishop, because he was a, a prophet. And the point that Jesus made was that John's testimony is true and accurate, and this momentary lapse in doubt should not in any way be construed to think that John was fickle or false, vacillating, unstable, or unreliable. John was not a clerical chameleon who changed his colors to the situation he finds himself. He's not a pampered prince who flattered those in power to gain personal comfort. John was a prophet. A man of God speaking for God. And so Jesus continues with another question. And, and really with this question, he validates, validates John as a prophet. Verse, <clears throat> verse 9. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. John was a prophet, more than a prophet. A prophet really, as I said before, is one who who spoke for God, uh, who speaks on God's behalf, often sent by God uh, to call Israel, the nation, back to him and back to covenantal faithfulness, warning them of the consequences of ongoing or continued disobedience and also revealing promises That God made regarding the future. And so the prophet's role and purpose was to point people back to God. And John was certainly a prophet. Because he spoke to God calling the nation to repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was a prophet pointing people to God. Turn to him. Look to him. Believe in Him. But He was not only a prophet. He was the prophesied prophet. Verse 10 says, This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus said that John was a prophet and that he was more than a prophet. He was the prophet, the prophet that other prophets prophesied about. He was 
to be the one, the messenger that would be sent before the Messiah. And then Jesus quotes Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Maybe just turn there for a, for a moment. Malachi is the last book uh, in the Old Testament. And I want you to see this and note this. In Malachi chapter 3, this of course is the words written by Malachi, but they are the very words of Yahweh. They are God's words. He says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi was the human voice, but the words were Yahweh's. It's the Lord speaking. Now when Jesus quotes this verse in relation to John and indicating that John was the messenger going before him, this becomes a claim to deity. Jesus was in fact saying, and I'm not sure the, the, the crowd picked up on this at that time, but he was basically saying, John is the one prophesied that will come before the Messiah, the Lord, and he testifies about me. He says, I am the one. I am the expected one. I am Emmanuel, God with us. And so we see that John is a prophet and that he was the prophet. And Jesus continues in verse 11 and says that John was a great prophet. Verse 11 we read, Truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verily, most assuredly, truly I say to you, one among, uh, among those born of, a, of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Born of a woman really means a human being. It was a Jewish expression meaning just a person. And so Jesus was saying that up to now, no person, no man, no woman, no one who ever lived on earth is greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's a pretty startling statement considering the company of the Old Testament, men like Abraham, men like Moses, men like David, men like Elijah. But John, Jesus said, was greater than them all. Why? Because of the privilege granted him, bestowed on him by God, to be the forerunner of Christ, to prepare his way to point him out, to show him, say, this, behold, the Lamb of God. You see, all the other prophets before him prophesied of the grace that would come, and they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. 
First Peter 1 verse 10 and 11 says. And later on, Jesus said something similar to when he, when he addressed the, the disciples uh, in explaining why he started teaching in parables. He says, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so many prophets in the past, all the prophets in the past, up to John, John was the one who saw him, he saw the Messiah. He pointed him out. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. That's why he was the greatest of all prophets. Because he witnessed to Christ. And if that statement was startling, the next is even more startling. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he how can that be? How, how do we understand that? Well, how can the least gifted, the least significant, the least prominent citizen in the kingdom of heaven be greater than the greatest prophet? And the best way to get our heads around it is to understand the criteria for greatness that Jesus used here. John was the greatest of all prophets. Why? Because he could point most clearly, most decidedly, most emphatically to Christ, to Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. More clearly than all other prophets before him. And yet those who are in the kingdom of heaven, that is those who live after the fuller revelation of Christ, the fulfillment of his ministry, the, his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, they are privileged with an even clearer, more unmistakable, more certain, more decisive testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the King. And you see, John doubted, not because he was fickle or false. I mean, his doubt did not disqualify him from being the greatest prophet uh, that, that, that Jesus mentioned. Because that depended on his God-given privilege, being a forerunner of Christ. His doubt arose from his place within the timeline of God's redemptive history. You see, John's understanding was still veiled, was still not 100% clear. I mean, he had not been privileged to see and be part of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he was in jail. He, he could only hear about it. He did not witness the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus. He was excluded. He was isolated. And so from that perspective, he, he did not see what others saw. While the least in the kingdom of heaven, we have been given the privilege by reason of our place in the timeline of God's redemptive history, living after the events of the cross. That's why the least in the kingdom is in heaven is greater than John. Because we can point to Jesus more emphatically, more clearly, more decisively than John and any of all of his predecessors. And people, we need, we need to grasp the significance of this. Greatness in the eyes of God 
is not measured by our intelligence, our, our giftedness, our generosity, our courage, our discernment, our work. By, it's not measured by our personal achievements. No, our greatness, our significance lies in our witness to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. Greatness in the eyes of God is measured by us faithfully pointing out Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Savior. Greatness is measured in us identifying Jesus for who He is. The exclusivity of His salvation, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The certainty of His Lordship, that He is the sovereign Lord of lords and King of kings. It is measured by faithfulness in testifying about Jesus. Faithfulness in witnessing to His grace. Faithfulness in pointing to Christ as Savior, Christ as Lord. Faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel, living the gospel, loving the lost. Greatness is measured in faithfulness in being a disciple of Jesus and making disciples of Christ. Greatness is measured in faithfulness to Christ and His body, the church. Greatness is measured to faithfulness to the witness of Christ in our marriage. As we love as Christ loves, as we submit as the church submits. Greatness is measured in faithfulness to pointing to Christ in raising our children in our parenting. Teaching and training them in the ways of the Lord. Witnessing, testifying to them of His grace in our lives and His grace that He extends to them. And that is to be done when we sit down and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise up again. The unflappable, uncompromising testimony of Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Christ the Lord. And John was the greatest of prophets, for he pointed to the preeminence of Christ from his place in redemptive history. And the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, because we can point more clearly to the preeminence of Christ living this side of the cross. You see, greatness in fo is found in making Christ great. If you want to be great, then make Him great. Make much of Him. Exalt Him. Proclaim Him. And Jesus goes on, and just as we sort of settled our understanding of this verse in, in verse 11, we encountered another difficult verse that left John really as a perplexed prophet. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist now until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And when this verse is understood correctly, it really helps us understand why John was doubting, why he was perplexed. And it's also the reason why many today may be doubting and are perplexed, because it deals with the problem of evil in the world, evil done against the kingdom of God, sometimes even 
evil done in the name of the kingdom. Like, for instance, the crusade. But from the days of John the Baptist, it refers from John's ministry when he began, he became preaching repentance and pointing to Christ, until now, which until including the ministry of Jesus, really the, that period, that overlapping period of the inauguration of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent men take it by force. Or as the NIV renders it, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, there's, there are different translations because there are a number of issues here uh, that we need to take into account. Uh, issues of grammar, lexical, uh, the word, what the meanings of the word, uh, also uh, syntax, uh, and then also contextual considerations. And it, and it becomes pretty technical. Um, and so I'm not going to bore you with all the, which verb was, was in the passive and which verb was in the middle and how do you understand this meaning of this word? What is the, the, really the use of this word in the rest of the Bible? I'm just going to give you sort of the three major, uh, understandings of this verse. Um, the first one is, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Really, and here the focus is on the kingdom that suffers. So the verb is passive. It is the violence is done to the, to the kingdom by violent men who seeks to attack it. Um, the second one is the kingdom of heaven advances forcefully. Here the verb is middle, meaning that the kingdom itself is moving ahead relentlessly. Uh, and forceful men lay hold of it. So the, the kingdom of, 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 of heaven uh, advances relentlessly forward through the powerful ministry of John and of Jesus. When, when Jesus came and he started preaching and John came preaching and Jesus doing miracles, the kingdom was advancing. Um, Luke 16 says that uh, everyone was pressing into him. Uh, and so the idea here is that the kingdom advances relentlessly, and it's only those who relentlessly uh, exert themselves to enter the kingdom are those who are in the kingdom. And so the idea here is, is more on the, on the difficulty of being part of the kingdom. Um, similar to what Jesus said, by us have to enter through the narrow gate. Uh, it's, it's hard. There's not, there's not many ways. You need, to, you need to come into the kingdom through Christ. Um, and so some understands or, inter or translates that verse like that. But there is a, a third option and one that I favor because it ad understands the kingdom as advancing forcefully, relentlessly. Uh, that is through the powerful ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus uh, as, as they preached the gospel, as they did, or as, as Jesus at least did miracles. But it also suffered attacks against it. He also suffered opposition from violent men who takes it for their own purposes, who takes hold of it. And I think contextually this view has the strongest support because this explains why John was struggling, why John was doubting. Uh, how can the kingdom be at hand 
How can the kingdom be advancing? The people are repenting. People are being baptized uh, through the ministry of, of, of John and, and Jesus. Jesus showing signs of miracles and, and wonders and, and healings. All acts that resembles uh, the conditions of the kingdom to come. And so John is thinking, well, the kingdom is advancing. But why am I still in jail? Why is Herod, the imposter king, still not deposed? Why uh, are the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, who were hostile to John and increasingly hostile to Jesus, seeking to destroy him because they wanted the kingdom in their way for their prosperity? They sought a political Messiah that would depose Rome and establish them as rulers over Israel and over the nations. Bringing them prosperity. They were not interested in Christ's kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. Which is only possible through the redemptive work of Christ. His death and resurrection. And so there are people who oppose the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. According to the plans and purposes of God. They wanted their own version of the kingdom. And so the kingdom is advancing while at the same time, even to this day, men seek to lay hold of it for their personal gain. Violent men, forceful men who do not squirm to use religion to build their own kingdoms for their own pleasures. They're building their own empires, their version of the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, that was true of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the days of Jesus. That was true of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's true of every false prophet and teacher that has risen since the days of Christ. And so, John was perplexed. He was the perplexed prophet. Because Jesus came and he was rejected. Jesus was announced, and his people did not receive him. And Jesus continued that John was not only a prophet, he was not only the prophet, he was not only a great prophet, that he was not only a perplexed prophet, but he was in fact a prophetic pointer to the Messiah. Verse 13 <clears throat> For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so John, <clears throat> pardon me, the forerunner of Christ, he witnessed the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy, predicting the coming of God's kingdom and the arrival of the king. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And the prophets and the law used here sort of in a reversed order. Uh, but it doesn't change really the meaning. It refers to basically all the Old Testament writings. All the Old Testament prophecies up to and including John. He was an Old Testament prophet. <clears throat> they all spoke of the coming kingdom. They prophesied of the day of the coming of the Messiah. And we've looked uh, 
last week about it, about the expected one that was mentioned in Genesis 3, the head crusher who was to come, uh, the blessing to, of the nation through Abraham in Genesis 12, Shiloh the king spoken of by Jacob in Genesis 49, the scepter-carrying star of Judah uh, in Numbers 24, the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, the son of David, 2 Samuel 7, the king of God, Psalm 2, the king priest, Psalm 110, the righteous bronze of David, Jeremiah, 33, the shepherd of God, Ezekiel 37, and the servant of God in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. John was the last prophet to be sent by God before Messiah appeared. There's a frog in here. Thank you. Excuse me. He was the messenger sent by Yahweh to be his forerunner. Remember Malachi 3.1. And now here in verse 14, Jesus said, If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. If you are willing to accept it, does not mean uh, there is doubt in the truth of that prophecy, but it is difficult for them to have understood it, to have accepted it. See, Malachi... <clears throat> prophesied about 400 years before Christ, and then silence. God did not send a prophet. God did not speak to his people for 400 years until the arrival of John the Baptist. Now the last word of God recorded through the prophet Malachi promised that Elijah would come. Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment. The prophet Elijah will turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. He will lead the nation really in wholesale repentance, both old and young, uh, before God utterly destroyed them. He would restore the earth to its Edenic wonder and splendor. That is the Messiah. He will break the curse or reverse the curse, and all nations would be willingly be subjecting themselves to his sovereign rule. Malachi 4 verse 5 and 6 reads, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so the Jews were aware that Elijah did not die, that he was taken to heaven while being alive through a fiery chariot that God sent. And so the expectations was that the prophet Elijah or one like Elijah would come before the coming of the king, before the the judgment day of, of God. Now Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John... He's Elijah. He's, he's, he's the fulfillment of that. Uh, not that he was literally Elijah. Uh, he was not Elijah reincarnated. Uh, John himself denied that he was Elijah in John 1.21. And the angel of the Lord who announced his birth to his dad, Zacharias, said, to, uh, said that John will come uh, before the Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
So John was a prophet like Elijah in appearance, wearing the same coat, camel's hair coat, and, and also in ministry, being unwavering, unflappable in his call to people to come back to the Lord, as Elijah did one against all the Baal prophets of, of his day. Later on, Jesus in his ministry uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of, of Peter, James, and John. And then Moses and Elijah are said to have appeared with Jesus and communed with him. And his disciples asked him about it later, and, and Jesus said, Why then? Uh, in answer to them, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoken to them about John the Baptist. <clears throat> So Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is one like Elijah. If Israel had received Christ, Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah, then John would have been the literal fulfillment of Malachi. But now the people have rejected Jesus as the Christ. And so another prophet like Elijah would be sent in future. Maybe perhaps one of the, the two witnesses that we read in Revelations 11 uh, doing miracles that are similar to that of, of Elijah, causing the rain to cease at will. And so John was the prophesied Elijah of Christ's first coming. He was a prophetic pointer to Christ. If they would have accepted John as one like Elijah, they should also have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so John, sorry, Jesus defended John. He praised John to be a prophet, the prophesied prophet, a great prophet, the prophet perplexed by the resistance and rejection of men of the kingdom. And he is the prophet like Elijah, a prophetic pointer to the identity of the Messiah. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, let him who hears, sorry, let him who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus appealed to those who were in the hearing of his words, his defense of John, his praise of John. And he appealed to them really to believe John's message. For he testified about Christ, his witness. And we will see next time that the people were unresponsive, unreceptive. In fact, their doubt turned into unbelief, and their unbelief into hostile opposition, shouting for him to be crucified, the king of the Jews. And so they murdered their savior and their king. 
But what, what, what they meant for evil, God meant for good and raised him up to life on the third day, appearing to many as a witness, as a testimony to them. And then ascended into heaven where he is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his own. And now he has sent us to be pointers to Christ. To be a witness to who he is. To bear testimony of his work in us. And he's promised to those who would repent and believe that they may be part of the kingdom of heaven. And so in closing, let me just give us a few points to consider, maybe points of application. We can give thanks to God for the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. For his ministry to us that has transformed us, that have regenerated us, that have saved us. Let us give thanks to God for that. And let us give thanks to God for our own testimony. For what he has done and what he asks us to do. That he includes us in his plans and purposes for his kingdom to come. So that we would witness, like John, to others. This is the Christ. He is the only way to be reconciled to the Father. And let us pray that we would be faithful in our witness to Jesus. That we would not be fickle and that we would not be false, but that we will be steadfast and true, devoted, dedicated. And then let us guard against speaking against one another, in causing doubt in the minds of others about the testimony of a brother or sister. Let us make sure that we don't undermine the work of Christ, the, the testimony of who He is in the life of others. And let us give thanks that we have an advocate, that we have a high priest, that we have a friend in Jesus who's willing to defend us before the Father, but also before men. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we rejoice, Lord, in just reading about how you stood up for your prophet, John, that you defended him, Lord, that you vindicated him, that you validated him, that he is my prophet. He is my messenger. Listen to his witness. Receive his testimony. And Lord, 
you have, by your grace, have granted us a more complete, a more clear, a more decisive, unambiguous witness to your identity. That you are indeed the Savior of the world. That you are indeed the King of your kingdom. That Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. And that there is no salvation in any other name than the name of Christ. And so help us, Lord, to be steadfast and sure. In Jesus' name, amen.